Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Hey everybody, before we get started, I want to give a quick mention to Manning Publications live Manning Conferences. Manning are running a series of one-day conferences, free to attend, just sign up using the link in our show notes. On September 15th is their RustConf, featuring four expert speakers and a series of 10-minute lining talks. We still have a long way to go to achieve diversity, inclusion, and equality in technology. Manning's contribution is the Women in Tech online conference on October 13th, starring the women rocking the tech boat. Link to sign up in the show notes. No need to travel anywhere. Live at Manning conferences streamed globally via Twitch. Episode 83, recorded on August 19th, 2020. The Cloud Pod takes a quantum leap. Good afternoon, guys. It is a hot, hot, hot day here in the Bay Area uh, with the heat wave in full effect. Indeed. <laughs> not, to, not to mention the ash. ash yeah, yeah, and, and of course, California is burning again. So, yeah. you know, not only is it hot, but you're going to now not be able to breathe while it's hot. So it's uh, pretty miserable all around here in California. <laughs> Plus, it's still social distancing. We can't do anything, and everyone's tired of being in their house and seeing their family. That's how this was working these days. On the plus uh, side, though, doing? I have no desire to go outside right now because it, it feels like a hellscape and it's it's really hard to breathe. <laughs> so it's like, I don't mind being like inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it looks like one, too. Yeah. I got a really cool picture of a bright red sun this morning. It's uh, Ooh. like something from sci-fi. Superman would be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Blade Runner, maybe. That's mm. the one that comes to mind for the red sun in, in sand or whatever. All right. Well, we got an action-packed show for you this week once again here at the Cloud Pod. Uh, first is Amazon is potentially looking to invest in Rackspace, uh, which would link two longtime players in the cloud technology space. Uh, they're looking to acquire a minority stake, uh, which works uh, Rackspace, which works with Amazon's businesses to help enterprises adopt the cloud. This was a rumor reported by Reuters this week. Uh, Amazon Rackspace discussions are in preliminary stage, and it's not guaranteed that a deal ha- will happen. Uh, potentially, it won't happen because it's leaked, which you know, people don't like either. Uh, apparently, Rackspace shares rose 70% on the news, where they just went IPO a few weeks ago. So that's a nice little boost uh, if you were uh, in the Rackspace IPO market. Uh, but it's unclear how much Amazon would be willing to buy of the company. And Rackspace, uh, of course, is going to be a big play in enterprise for many, many years to come. So I actually mentioned this, I think, to you guys multiple years ago, that Amazon should just buy Rackspace when they went private the first time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. they, need, they desperately needed to scale their professional services. Uh, Rackspace would give them a really great opportunity to do that. And that would also give a path for existing Rackspace managed services customers to the cloud. Uh, that all Amazon could do for all of that, which I thought would have been awesome. Uh, and then, of course, they didn't do that because Amazon never listens to me. Mm, kind of got to wonder how many other vendors, cloud vendors, Rackspace will be recommending their customers migrate to if Amazon have a stake. <laughs> well, having recently sat through a demo and a sales pitch from Rackspace, it was very Amazon-centric. Mm. Um, I don't remember any GCP or any Azure coming up in that conversation. I mean, it was probably heavily targeted at us, which is why we didn't hear that. But... Uh, you know, they were definitely talking about CCOE and things that are very Amazon-specific uh, in their, their pitch, which was interesting. And I think there's companies that could take a lot of value from the Rackspace story with Annika and some of the other things they do. Uh, and I could see how this would really help uh, empower the professional services team at AWS. I'm just it really be interesting though. the speed. Oh, go ahead. No, go, I was just going to say it'll be interesting because ProServe has a pretty different charter from partner work. And usually they work with partners to do hands-on work that ProServe won't do for liability reasons. So I don't know if it's specifically to help scale ProServe per se or to have a partner that 
they have a little bit more influence and ability to help scale from the, the partner aspect. And that would make sense. That would make a minority investment make more sense. Unless you're Fox, you know, Fox. Because <laughs> <about this. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you could take a minority investment from Amazon, too, to help do the same thing. It doesn't have to be rack space necessarily. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> we would have a much harder time making a, an impact on an Amazon scale, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rack space has got some pretty cool real estate, too. If Amazon ever wanted to build a data center in Texas, for example. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it happens to be a mall, which apparently Amazon's really interested in buying mall space exactly. to uh, do distribution centers. So maybe that's the play. They're like, ah, we actually don't need rack space. We just want your mall. Just yep. sell us your mall so we can build a distribution center. <laughs> I've been to the mall. I've been to the mall. It's really cool. Is it? Nice. I had a tour, yeah. I'd never use rack space again, but <laughs> the mall's pretty neat. <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah they've been through some turmoil. You know, got bought by private equity, now re-IPO and all that. It, you know, it's interesting how they've kind of converted themselves into being a really cloud player from that legacy managed services vendor they used to be. So it's uh, really quite interesting. But uh, you know, I don't I don't necessarily know that it's a bad thing or a good thing if Amazon does this. But I'm I am interested to see if they do something. Well, uh, last year Amazon did did not and might have announced a service called Amazon Bracket and explained the basics of quantum computing, uh, starting from qubits and progressing to quantum circuits. And Amazon Bracket is is not or might be generally available today, and you can now make use of the both classically powered circuit uh, circuit simulator and quantum computers from D-Wave, IonQ, and Rigetti. Uh, this blog post uh, we're linking to here in the show walks you through setting up a simple circuit using the notebook interface, the same notebook interface you have in SageMaker. Uh, and there are many things you should keep in mind when looking at this technology, including this is a quantum uh, computing is, of course, an emerging field. And while some folks are experts, others will take some time to understand the concepts and the technology and figure out how to put them to use. Uh, QPUs, or, which is the compute unit uh, that you can use through brackets, support two different paradigms, the IonQ and Rigetti QPUs, and the, uh, support the simulator support circuit-based quantum computing, and the D-Wave QPU supports quantum annealing. Uh, I don't know what either of those mean, so great. Sounds uh, appealing to me. Yeah. Uh, each task that you run will incur a per-task charge, an additional per-shot charge. That is specific to the type of QPU, QPU that you use. The simulators incur an hourly charge billed by the second with a 15-second minimum, and notebook pricing is the same as SageMaker. Uh, I do not know enough about how to price this out, so I just took from blindly from Amazon's pricing sheet. So a developer designed a quantum circuit to use 30 qubits and simulate the circuit using the Amazon Bracket Managed Simulator. The simulation took 69 minutes, uh, or 1.15 hours, to execute, and the developers charged the rate of $4.50 per hour for a total of $5.17. If you want a more expensive example, the researcher ran a quantum annealing problem on the D-Wave 2000Q quantum computer. Uh, This task included 2,000 result samples of the sample annealing problem, and the cost actually test was 68 cents. Okay, maybe not more expensive. (laughs) And then the most expensive option they gave you was the scientist ran a quantum algorithm on the Rigetti Aspen 8 quantum computer. The task included 10,000 repeated shots of the same circuit design, and the cost of executing this task was $3.80. Okay, so apparently quantum is not as expensive as I thought it was. That's all I've learned. Or maybe it is. I think think they're missing their third class of person here. It's like some folks are experts. Some folks will take some time. Some folks will never have a clue how this stuff works. <laughs> For those at home, I'm raising my hand. Like yeah. I, I, I look at these things and I'm like, I'm, I'm jealous of the people that get to work on these cutting edge technologies, but I'm also sort of relieved that I don't have to. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> this would be a very big ask for my little brain to try to get to bend around for figuring out how to use this solution. So, it's, but it's I mean, great I, that it's being offered. 
Yeah, the few times that I've read up about quantum encryption, I just my brain explodes. I'm like, oh my god, this is so complicated. <laughs> Wasn't a yeah, movie mentioned oh, the implications of our existing uh, cryptographic ciphers mm. and their. Was there a movie a while ago, where, like an 80s movie, where there was a video arcade game of some kind, and the people who played the game were actually being screened by an alien race to go and fight for them in a war someplace? Remember that? <laughs> I, I think mean, there's there's an old 80s movie where, you know, The Last Starfighter, and there's oh, a book that I just be, read. That there's a book a, I just read that with a very similar, similar plot line as well. Mm. I kind of wonder yeah. if people who start to use these uh, quantum cloud services are just being scrutinized for... Uh, being scooped up to become quantum software developers or quantum whatever. There's so few people who know anything about it. Yeah, the, the, the experts that I have pictured in my brain look a lot like Doc from Back to the Future. <laughs> uh, so funny you should mention that. In the article, if you go to it, there is a video uh, with one of the head product managers and uh, Bill, Bill Vaz, VP of AWS Technology, uh, who basically walks you through this thing. And he, I saw the picture of him and I was like, yeah, looks like a guy who'd be into quantum. I get it. <laughs> With no real idea what anyone who gets into quantum looks like, but yeah. it just, it fit, the, it fit the mold that I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be the guy. I can see it. So, it's uh, well, AWS Stuff Functions has added updates uh, to many things in choice states, global access to context objects, dynamic timeouts, result selections, and intrinsic functions to the Amazon States language. Of course, Amazon States language is how uh, you connect things with workflows in step functions for between AWS Lambda, AWS Fargate, and Amazon SageMaker. Uh, to create rich applications. Uh, They're enhancing the sub-functions with the update to the ASL, which I just covered all those things a second ago. Uh, and they go into many, many details here, including the ability to do things like compare uh, things and choices, like compare, comparison operators, existence tests, wildcarding, and variable-to-variable comparisons, uh, global access to context objects previously was only accessible to the parameter block. Hey, did you know there was another parameter thing at Amazon? <laughs> Didn't know that one. But with this update, removing the restriction, you have the flexibility to reference the context object outside the parameter block. And then new timeout options uh, for dynamic timeouts, including timeout second paths and heartbeat seconds paths. Uh, new result selectors and string constructions and ability to take JSON to a string or a string to a JSON. Huh, so weird. Available in all regions that subfunctions are available. And before the show, Ryan said he understands this perfectly because I do not. And so he's going to now try to explain what I just explained to you in layman's terms. Yeah, after the, after the quantum you know, conversation, I'm really happy to... to at least something I can understand. I mean, the, the end result of step functions, which, which are great, is that, you know, moving from stage to stage in, in the state machine, you know, you were just limited in the inputs and what you can make a decision on. And so this is just adding a lot more um, inputs and types of inputs that you can use in sort of to make determinations on how you progress from state to state. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, this is one of those situations where it's it's rope to hang yourself with as well, um, because you can make a very complex state machine that can go and fork in multiple areas. Um, and the more you introduce that into your design flow, um, the more likely you're going to end up with, you know, like a repetitive loop or something that, you know, never completes or, you know, race conditions of other sorts. But, you know. I, I'm for flexibility in tools, and so give me the rope to hang myself with and let me learn that the hard way, um, as Justin knows, since uh, he has to usually pay for those things when I learn the hard way. Uh, <laughs> oh, we should do a segment on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ryan learns a thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's the fastest possible spend that you could, you could have done on uh, AWS. We should, we should think about that. 
Mm. It was pretty quick. It Ooh. might be. I might reach out to Corey on that one and see if, uh, <laughs> yeah, because I, I think that's a, a the discussion series he has. <laughs> Ryan, what um, like if you were going to name like the ideal use case of a type of workload that fits super well on Step? So primarily, you know, like this supports, you know. Um, serverless primarily so you're doing lambdas um, which is primarily how i use it but also you know SageMaker and and container based you know using fargate um so it's really one of those like if you think about not really the the typical kubernetes you know web um or middle tier and fronted by a service you know communication these are more of the task driven um or event driven things where you based on some sort of trigger some sort of change you're going to do a bunch of compute or analysis on a thing and then, you know, fire it off to the next step. What step functions allows you to do is, is rather than putting all that logic of, you know, what to do inside the function, you can concentrate your functions to just what, to distill it down to just what you need. And the step functions are where you provide the logic for, I was able to, you know, process this data, I'm moving on to the next step of, you know, publishing this data or, or verifying this data and you know you're defining all those as, as your states in your state machine rather than putting that logic within your your lambda or your container so it's it's just a you know it's it's another way of doing things just like most amazon services it's um another tool in your swiss army knife cool i think it's one really useful use case that I like step functions for and that's if you're waiting around for a long time for something to happen if it was Lambda, you'd have to keep firing off the Lambda and then, you know, I'm already yet? No. Okay, try try again in 60 seconds. But but Step Functions kind of abstracts that for you. And you can it can be changes in DynamoDB, it can be objects in S3, anything can be the, the, the trigger that moves things to the next step. So it could be a link in an email that somebody clicks. Once they click it, it goes to the next part of the Step Function, which, you know, does it send them a coupon? Does it, does it do whatever? But it means you don't have to have something sitting there polling the whole time. I mean... AWS have something sitting there pulling the whole time, but we don't have to. Yeah, <laughs> we, don't we don't have to have worry, to worry about, about that it. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think of like adding the the timeout options. Think about how you would have to do that without like managing that state. You got to fire up some invocation to basically make the determination not to do a thing, right? Versus, and so now you can move that you can abstraction into the state machine, and you don't have to necessarily run compute resources in order to make that determination. Probably easier also that you're centralizing a lot of that logic in one place instead of it starting to sprinkle about different Lambda functions and different S3 config files that people are creating as they build something and as it grows organically. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like the, the ASL is sort of a, 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 a document flow or a process flow as code in a ways, you know, like if you think about how, if you have a service application that has a bunch of different Lambda functions and DynamoDBs and triggers from Cloud of, CloudWatch events, like it can get complicated very fast and um, whatever documentation you're trying to put in place to sort of communicate that is probably going to be out of, it, out of date very quickly. So having a JSON, you know, basically construct of that is helpful as well. Okay. Deep dive. That <laughs> was kept jumping back session. into it. So I was I was letting you guys deep go. Dive. I was like, yeah, yeah. that was a deep dive. Deep dive. <laughs> I like deep dive. Yeah. 
Uh, well, AWS Security Hub Automated Response and Remediation Solution is now generally available to you. Uh, this is a reference implementation that includes a library of automated security response and remediation actions to common security findings. Uh, security Hub gives you a comprehensive view of your security posture across your AWS accounts, or either in specific accounts or in your entire organization. And customers can create a CloudWatch event rule to invoke on-demand response workflows for selected findings across our AWS accounts, or they can use CloudWatch events or rules to make fully automated actions on specific types of findings. Uh, many find that customers find the process to set up CloudWatch event rules difficult, yeah, so you should fix that, and time-consuming, and create the permissions to enable them to run across account can be complex. Uh, version 1.0 includes 10 prepackaged security playbooks to remediate security findings, uh, which they did not list all of them, but they gave us a couple examples, including customers can apply recommendations to ensure key rotation within 90 days, establish strong password policies, or enforce encryption of event logs stored in AWS, as a couple examples. Yeah, this architecture has been, I mean, we've all been using this architecture for years with CloudWatch events um, and other notifications. Uh, But I do think what's super cool is starting to package up those playbooks and aligning them with the business requirements that the security team wants to be able to know that is, you know, it's implemented correctly. So I would imagine that that starts getting extended past uh, generic and into vertical specific compliance or regulatory uh, playbooks yeah if you think about the you know the specialization of you know the engineer that has to use these tools are they are they going to be super good at you know automation and the aws ecosystem in order to, to create these um you know very challenging you know, solutions or are they going to be really good at forensic analysis and you know risk detection and uh, other more security centric things so this is you know a great enabler if you were in one bucket and not the other um, i think if you're more technical you're going to find these too limiting um, i i mean i feel that way about most you know amazon solutions that they do in this you know where it's they're not really telling you anything this isn't a product that you use this is a implementation of existing services that they're sort of defining for you and so, but if you're not really into, you know, super customization, this is a great enablement. And even the people that are into super customization can at least start here and then make modifications. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. You can now use a new capability in Amazon Systems Manager Distributor to deploy and install and manage a popular third-party agent. Uh, with this launch, you can select a pre-built agent directly from the distributor without having to create or maintain your own software, software packages, which when this gets integrated into Marketplace. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> the, first, uh, the first partner to do this is Trend Micro Cloud One Agent. Uh, this is the first one being offered through this capability, and the software packages are stored in Systems Manager, providing a centralized repository with version control. So you can uh, pick your version from the list of published uh, artifacts from Trend and then get those out to your servers all through the automation of Systems Manager. It's pretty cool. It's like it's like adding layers of somebody else's software. It's I can like see a third-party library, right? Yeah, you know, a publishing library. Yeah, it just starts with a with a trend agent, but it could be anything. It could be any piece of software that you want to license and install. Yeah. 
And if they had Bitcoin some going miner. Yeah, yeah, that too. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> we have those inference engines now to use. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. Jump on the show. You're jumping the show notes, Jonathan. Come on. Yeah, yeah very, uh, very packaging and productizing configuration management. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. KubeCon uh, Europe was this week, so there's a ton of container news this week as well uh, from all the vendors. AWS Fargate uh, for Amazon EKS now supports Amazon EFS, uh, which, if you remember, came to ECS in early April, uh, supporting EFS access points and on-demand provisioning of EFS capacity to meet your container workload needs. Uh, this does leverage the Container Storage Interface, or CSI, uh, which is standard for exposing block and file storage systems to containerized workloads. The general availability of EFS CSI driver for EKS was in July of 2020, and this release takes advantage of that general availability. So again, like we see, we see all the time little pieces get released and then all of a sudden a big solution comes out just like this one mm -hmm. uh, so good to see once again that uh you know stateful containers are a thing i guess well it's stateful containers but it's it's that interface that really makes it work right let's it's missing from a lot of other container orchestrators and so it's it's really the ability to provision storage on demand and manage that using the same ecosystem versus you know you can do that now with ECS and EFS using, you know, other automation tools. But uh, you know, Kubernetes has long had the advantage of being able to declare that stateful storage block layer where other other systems just don't have it. If you're also excited to run your machine learning workloads, you can now do that with ECS as well because it now supports the easy to inf one instances uh, with our clusters for high performance and the lowest predictable or prediction costs in the cloud for ML AI workloads. Uh, this is coming a few weeks after EKS also received this capability. Uh, so you can now run all those machine learning workloads in containers. And I'm super excited to support containers, I guess, with my machine learning team. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So I think this development's interesting because I wonder, like ECS, uh, ECS for task-driven workloads, in my opinion, holds the advantage over Kubernetes. Um, it's a lot easier and user-friendly to define um, ephemeral workloads in in the ECS system versus Kubernetes, which is very very much designed for how to route traffic and and how to support your app and the management layer. And you know, don't get me started on you know nested YAML files because um, that'll be a very long show. But so it is. I, I like seeing them add these kind of capabilities because I think that this is one of those areas where ES, ECS really shines. So it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm still a big fan of ECS, even over EKS. Just it's so much simpler. So much simpler. It's just much more is managed for you. Much more. Yeah. Even using Fargate for EKS, um, you know, I've been playing with that a little bit. Uh, you know, you're still writing just tons of JSON, <laughs> which you know how much I love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I think a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, we talked about um, a serverless tool called SLS-DevTools. Uh, and at the time, I don't think we fully understood exactly what it was. And we have now been enlightened by the AWS service hero, Ben Ellerby, who wrote a guest blog on the AWS blog. The SLS DevTools are open source project that aims to be a set of developer tools for the serverless world. Basing the interface in the terminal allows it to run in the development environment. The SLS DevTools provide rapid internal feedback, so you don't have to use the console. Targeted metrics allow you to build fast and efficient applications right from the console. Powerful key bindings to deploy, open, and manipulate stack resources. 
It works with CloudFormation-based IAC, such as the serverless framework or the AWS serverless applications uh, model, and an automated best practices audit via SLS DevTools Guardian to make sure you're not doing bad practices in your Lambda functions. Uh, so this is actually really cool, and if you take a look at this article, uh, they have some screenshots of uh, basically this working in the console, and it kind of gives you like a little top-type interface directly to your Lambda function while it's running and executing. Um, so you get that real-time feedback right there while you're writing the code and realize, hmm, this maybe isn't the best, most efficient way I could do that. Maybe I can make this more optimal. Uh, there's lots of great opportunities uh, to use this in your dev pipeline, and I do highly recommend you take a look at this if you're doing a lot of serverless app work. That's a screenshot. It looks like something from the movie Hackers, though. Seriously, the, the green screen terminal with the, with the chart drawn on it in ASCII. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it, it was, and, you, know, you look at the key bindings and stuff. I don't think that's an accident. I think that you know, like a lot of the, the feature set in here is designed for... You know, I don't know the the stereotypical development practice, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited to try this out. I needed the pretty pictures to really understand it. I thought I, when this was first announced, I thought it was more of a like a framework in the sense of like this is how you do soft, you know serverless software development, which is a little dry and works for usually single use case. And so like this is much more powerful than I thought. And so this is, I can't wait to use this. And I will be a cool hacker because it's going to look like you know. 1983 green screen. But do you have a mechanical keyboard? If you don't have a mechanical keyboard, you're not allowed to use the tool. It doesn't work yet. Just oh, <laughs> no. I don't know if I'm that cool. I've got one. <laughs> of course you do. We know you're cool. Yeah. <laughs> I can't use it. It drives my, my wife insane. I have to unplug can't it. I can only, only use it when she's not around. You definitely can't use it on the podcast because we already <laughs> deal with Peter's typing all the time anyway. He's... he's co-working on his side everything. Like, I'm doing I've done a great job of not touching the keyboard. <laughs> He's writing his novel. <laughs> it's a, a rival war and peace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, this, is a, this next one is interesting to me. This is a uh, security concern I had not considered or knew about until this article came out from uh, AWS. Apparently now the application and classic load balancers are supporting HTTP desync mitigation mode a new feature that protects your applications from issues due to HTTP desync, uh, which first question I had was, what is HTTP desync? <laughs> uh, so basically, the way they explain this is modern-day web apps are typically built with a chain of proxies that ensure fast and reliable communication between clients and servers. And immediately when I read this, I realized, oh, they're talking about having an ALB in front of a Kubernetes cluster, maybe going into a service mess with Istio that's then going into some type of Nginx abomination that isn't going to an actual Apache web server uh, that you're doing for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, and the reality is, is that when you're dealing with the RFC 7230 uh, spec for proxying and for HTTP headers, uh, they may not all support them in the same way, or they may support them in ways that are different. Um, and so those HTTP 1.1 requests, they may have differences in interpretation while parsing non-compliant requests. And these differences in interpretation can cause desync, where different proxies in the chain may disagree on request boundaries and therefore may not process the same request in the same way. And this could leave behind arbitrary messages that may be prepended to the next request in the queue and smuggled to the back end. And this can make apps vulnerable to request queue or cache poisoning, which could lead to credential hijacking or execution of unauthorized commands. Uh, and to mitigate this, many people will just turn off uh, non-conforming RFC. Uh, but that can then cause all kinds of other fun real-world breakage, especially if you don't understand how Istio works uh, or some of the other magic that's happening in the proxying world these days. Uh, and as a result, pursuing a strategy of only allowing RFC-compliant conformance could pose an availability risk to some valid use cases. Uh, to enable this, uh, it uses the AWS open source library called HTTP Desync Guardian, which you can find on their GitHub. Uh, you can configure your load balancer with checking a box and choosing the appropriate mitigation strategy based on the security needs of your application. Uh, this comes in three modes. Uh, the default is defensive. 
The next one is the strictest, and the third is the monitor mode. Uh, the defensive mode allows your app to receive known safe requests irrespective of their RFC 7230 compliance. It blocks requests that are known RFC com- compliant, or sorry, it does not block RFC compliant ones, and it does block known security threats against RFC 7230. And third, it will close the, both the client and upstream connections irrespective of HTTP keepalive limits for ambiguous requests. Uh, strictest mode is that mode they said don't do, which says only allow the 7230 compliant traffic. And then, of course, monitor mode allows your load balancer to forward request receives, regardless of the classification of the app behind it, because you don't care about this concern because you're not doing this craziness. Uh, all three modes offer you CloudWatch metrics to see if you are doing it or if it's a problem for you. And this is available at no extra charge for Amazon. So thanks, Amazon, for that. I appreciate free f- features. This is a classic example of why I... I- just don't see myself ever being, you know, a non hyperscaler consumer. Like, there's no way I'm finding this risk or this attack vector on my own. I'm just not a security engineer that's that in the weeds. But because I, you know, deploy into Amazon, I'm going to go click and I've got all that protection built in. And, you know, in the, in the highly secure environment, I'll turn on break mode and see what happens. Or, and when that breaks, I'll turn it into passive mode and see what's actually causing causing the failure so this is this is fantastic i always like this kind of exploits though where you've got some very complex systems that you think you understand and you think they're going to plug into each other and it's exactly the way you you expect and these weird artifacts where, where unexpected things just happen and this was a, this was an awesome find by the black hat researcher who found it last year yeah, because it's just, really interesting because uh, it reminds me a lot of, you know, like, oh, you know, your Cisco and your Juniper and your HP switches all support spanning tree. And then when you actually <laughs> plug them in together and say talk spanning tree, they, they don't actually all talk spanning tree. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that in some way, uh, which is kind of takes me right back to my old networking days. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's funny because you usually think of every time you throw a proxy in front of something, you're kind of adding to the abstraction and the obscurity and therefore the security. And that's actually causing the problem here, which, which is uh, counterintuitive. But it is kind of funny. I mean, we did, we've done recently a few like application, you're just running through application penetration tests and, um, and you find problems with HTTP headers and you're okay, go remediate this. Here's the problem. And everyone disagrees as to whether or not uh, how to how to make that change, and then you start digging down, and you start realizing, oh, okay, yeah, you know, at what actual device is setting this header right now? Because there's so many layers of proxies and forwarders involved. Commvault is data management done differently. Commvault knows how important your data is to your business, enabling you to learn more about your data, manage your data, move your data securely and efficiently, and quickly recover your data to meet critical business needs. Available as a cloud-based software as a service solution, deployed on your existing on-premise virtualization environment, or as an appliance-based offering, their simple and centralized web interface lets you synchronize your data between on-premise data centers and your cloud environments, keeping downtime due to failures at a minimum. With Commvault, you can translate your virtual workloads to a cloud provider automatically, greatly simplifying the move to the cloud or your disaster recovery solution to the cloud. Commvault supports over 40 different cloud vendors, giving you the ability to use the cloud that is right for your business. To learn how Commvault can help you manage your data differently, save money, and reduce risk, head to www.thecloudpod.net slash Commvault to find out more and schedule your free trial of their SaaS offering. 
All right. Well, this is uh, this next article is another AMD Epic processor uh, announcement from AWS. They are now have the new 3.3 gigahertz uh, generally available to for the C5AD class of incidents, which are equipped with the local NVMe-based SSD block storage. Uh, we have made a decision that until the third generation Epic processors come out, we are never talking about this again here on the show just because – Amazon has milked this story for way too long now. <laughs> so we will uh, we will skip this one just like we do general availability announcements typically and some of the other things that are you know like new availability zones. Uh, we typically don't talk about those here on the show, and so this is being added to the list. We are not going to talk about the AMD Epic processor second-gen C5 AD expansion anymore. So I think it's just fun. the name. You know, it's, it's whoever's I mean, it was fun. in the it was press cores, like, like, they understand epic. this. Like, yeah, exactly. Epic. Yeah. Epic. Yeah. <laughs> I learned a lot more about uh, all of AMD's processors because I've been looking at building a new gaming system, the Threadripper, the the uh, Ryzen 9, you know, and all the different things. And then there's the Epic out there, which is way too expensive for my price badge. <laughs> and it doesn't perform as well, actually, for games. If you're going to build a gaming system, it's not it's not built for gaming. It's, it's got pretty, pretty crappy uh, single-core performance. Yes, that's very true. Because I've been doing the same research as you <laughs> <laughs> for the same that's reasons. <laughs> That's what happens when one of your good friends decides yeah. to build a gaming computer mm-hmm. and he's bragging about his ma- amazing benchmarks and you're like, ooh, yeah, I want that too. It's like a virus. <laughs> but he's, it but is. he's still playing the 20-year-old game, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he is playing at bot mode, so he's got like 17 copies of that game from 17-year-olds yeah. playing, so he can play by himself, you know, just interesting commentary of the world too. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> you should hear the arguments he gets into himself. <laughs> Yeah, I know. No, you're not supposed to pull that mob. What are you doing? Yeah, that's fun. Uh, well, AWS Systems Manager Explorer uh, has now released a new feature, which will only get replaced by a competing solution from AWS very soon, uh, which is what happens with all good SSM tools. I'm looking at you, Secrets Manager. Uh, you can now use Systems Manager Explorer to provide a summary of support cases across all of your AWS accounts to help you get a better visibility into the operational health of your AWS environment. Uh, the Systems Manager Explorer is an ops dashboard that provides a view of your operations data, uh, helping you see where you may need to investigate and remediate operational issues, uh, which I mean, typically support cases are opened by people. So I'm not sure that's an ops issue per se, but, you know, hey, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with the story in Amazon. The aggregated view of support cases can be broken down by status across specific accounts or your entire organization, and you can choose individual cases in the support case widget for detailed investigation and, fil- and filter the data, export the results of CSV, and publish an Amazon SNS notification. Uh, and you can also query the Explorer data directly with the API to create customized reports. Uh, this is available only, though, to business and enterprise support customers. So if you are on the free support, I'm sorry, you can't open tickets anyways. So it makes sense. Right. For you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why this isn't part of the support portal. It's, you know, w- w- instead of being part of Systems Manager, I guess it's because it's a read-only mode, you can't actually create tickets on their accounts using Systems Manager. That's why I feel like this is a, a feature ripe to be replaced by yeah. organizations at some point. Yep. <laughs> right. Support an organization sometime in the next year. Oh, no, this has been a feature we've asked for for a long time, is how do we centralize support across multi-account environments? Mm-hmm. And this is a, a good stepping stone. They probably were able to build it here faster than you know, building something in organizations, but you can just tell it's going to be replaced by something else. Because that's what happens with all Systems Manager features. Because people want the same features, but they don't want to use Systems Manager. That's the, the story. And every report's going to say the same thing. It's, yeah, as as someone who has like a, a very Rube Goldberg system that does provide me centralized visibility into our support cases, they should not do this. It's a terrible service. idea. Service limit increase. Service limit yeah. increase. Yeah, service exactly. limit increase. <laughs> yeah. You can, now you can export them as a CSV and see how many service limit increases you did. Ooh. Which is great because I just actually completed automation to do just that. <laughs> Perfect. 
yep. features that you know Sherlock your stuff all the time. That's what happens. Thanks, Amazon. Yeah, you always gotta love that. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Amazon's quest to become a Skynet is now going to a step forward with the announcement of World Forge uh, in AWS RoboMaker. AWS RoboMaker World Forge makes it faster, simpler, and less expensive to create a multitude of 3D virtual worlds to simulate your robot in. Uh, robotic app developers and QA engineers can automatically create hundreds of user-defined, randomized 3D virtual environments that mimic real-world conditions without extra engineering investment or infrastructure management. Uh, and you can generate one of these worlds for only $1.50 and export your world to S3 bucket for $5. So your world is worth only $1.50. But uh, it, you know, looking at some of the screenshots that are in this particular one, uh, it just looks like maybe something you might want to use with robot vacuums, like yeah. rooms. <laughs> I might want to put a little virtual robot in and say, "Hey, go figure out the best way to do that," and then you know, do that across thousands of uh, simulations to see which way is the best way to go to take on world domination from a vacuum cleaner. That's what I see. What if you're not happy with the with with the world you got? Like it's just a crap world. It's like, yeah, I didn't get anything that looked like there was in the catalog. I really hate that. Well, a bunch of pebbles and pebbles and. Mall Hills. She's like, this isn't it. It's not what I wanted. I, mean, I don't know if you ever played SimCity's 2000 or the earlier iterations of it, but you, you know, once you got tired of your world, you just put, you know, Godzilla on it or an earthquake or hurricane, <laughs> and you just wiped it out. That's what I used to do. Yeah, same here. We should we should troll anyone's support with this and tell them we, we absolutely hate our neighbors. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Amazon has decided to save us money finally with the new AWS Certificate Manager Private Certificate Authority now supporting private CA sharing. Uh, ACM Private Certificate Authority now support sharing a private CA with any AWS account or within your entire organization using the AWS Resource Access Manager uh, to share this account with your accounts. This allows you to do uh, in-account uh, in TLS SSL certificates, uh, and this eliminates the need to provision duplicate resources in every account in a multi-account environment, reducing costs and complexity. And this is a lot of cost for a lot of companies uh, because those private CAs are not cheap. Yeah, and if you've got a really sprawling strategy, you know, lots of accounts and very few resources per account, it just makes it not possible to use from a cost perspective. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super happy to see this one. I, you know, it makes me now want to build my own CA service built on top of this for my for, for the day job. I want this. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Fortunately, the roadmap is full for 2020. So yes. 2021. Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Starts with a CA. Then it's going to be Kubernetes. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, no. It's true. It's all true. <laughs> Well, moving on to GCP, who, again, is still in week, like, 12 of their Google Next something. Uh, the first thing they wanted to announce this week for you is that the BigQuery uh, data warehouse now is 99.99% available. Uh, this requires continuous uptime uh, in, in data warehouses as analytics demands grow and organizations require pay, rapid access to mission-critical insights. And disruption of unplanned downtime can severely impact company sales, reputation, and customer relations. With this in mind, they are announcing the leading industry, or industry-leading 99.99% uptime per calendar month increasing from 99.9%. This means that you went for 40-some-odd minutes to five minutes of downtime per calendar month with no planned downtime, ensuring full business continuity in your organization, uh, which I think is cool. But, uh, you know, I was surprised they didn't inc announce a price increase for this at the same time because that's what they did the last time they increased in SLA. But, uh, you know, if you need this capability with your BigQuery and you need this for real-time business decisions, I'm sure you're super happy with only five minutes of downtime uh, versus 40 minutes because if that breaks the bank, then you should probably be worried about this. I'm pretty sure that Google were already the, the leaders in providing BigQuery uptime since they are the only people who provide BigQuery uptime. I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> or BigQuery in general. 
Yeah. yeah. I think they're saying they're industry leading in the data warehouse space. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, which, I don't know. Uh, you know any, which, uh, which technically, any I think if you... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I don't know of any other providers who are doing database, data warehouse SLAs at four nines. No, they are the only one doing a pure data warehouse solution at four nines. Uh, there was some chatter on this on Twitter. I went and looked at Azure because someone said, I think Azure has this. Uh, Azure Synapse, which is their competitor product, is 99.9% as well. But uh, one of the interesting things is that Azure SQL Server, uh, you can get 99.995%. Oh. Uh, and you can add data warehousing technology to that. Uh, so you, technically you could get it, but that's not a manage out of the box uh, data warehouse solution. So it doesn't count. Can't believe it. Snubbed. 99.995. <laughs> They're just awesome. more prepared to pay when they miss it. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what really right. happens in these SLAs. Yeah. It's not about yeah. actually providing, you know, it's very possible BigQuery has never had an outage and it's been 100% availability, but they're not willing to commit to that mm-hmm. because they don't want to pay you if it does go down. Uh, this is all about how much risk is a company willing to pay for uh, in their service. So, you know, it's, it's good to see. I'm glad to see it, but uh, it doesn't mean as much as people think it does. As the number gets bigger, though, doesn't it get easier to extend the nines? Because it's like, okay, from four nines to like 11 nines, um, you can only have to pay for a possible of just under five extra minutes well, of I mean, downtime. If you actually look at the infrastructure costs of those nines, right, typically it's estimated that for every nine of availability you add to a service, it's a million dollars in spend. Um, so, I mean, if you if you actually want to make your technology meet the SLA you commit to. Now, you don't have to. You can take the yeah. risk side and you probably pay way less than a million dollars. Uh, in event of an outage, but yeah, that's typically what we look at in infrastructure space. So, you know, from a business perspective, it's probably a very low risk for them, and it already had very high availability, and it is designed in a very you know multi-region aware manner. If you read the blog post, they talk about how it does it. Um, it is a very highly available service from the get-go, so it, it has probably very low downtime historically. I would, yeah, I would like to see their actual downtime in the last several years, but yeah, I mean, I, I could see companies starting to opt for longer and longer SLAs uh, or tighter and tighter SLAs um, and not even building out to it. Just, hey, if we're, if we're down, we'll pay the, uh, pay the five minutes, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what your remediation says in your contract. Read, how, your how, <laughs> Read your contracts. Read your contracts. Depends on how much of that penalty actually is, right? Like how much yeah. are we actually going to get back? And, and the reality is typically when you're dealing with these SLAs that the, the service providers never have that much money in the game. You know, it's like, right. oh, we'll give you 50% of our monthly spend, right? And you're like, okay, that's $5,000, but you just lost me a million dollar in sales. Like, it's never commiserate with the actual value you're getting from your business um, in those SLAs. And if you can get a yeah. vendor who's willing to uh, commit to meet your financial risk, then definitely sign that contract right away. <laughs> I think for yes. every nine, every extra nine they commit to, they should pay you 10 times the amount of, uh, sort of remuneration if there's an outage. So if you commit to two nines, that's one thing. But if you commit to four nines, you pay me 100 times more than you would have done that two nines. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I like, that sounds fair. <laughs> so you start letting... sending people to like pulling plugs out at every Google building you could find, hoping <laughs> yeah. that you have an outage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're not going to let Jonathan build any SLAs. Nope. <laughs> or SLOs. Yeah. Uh, well, Google has announced 21 new features for the cloud operations, formerly Stackdriver product. Uh, but I swear, if one of them is training, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> uh, so these 21 items are very interesting here. The first one is general availability of SLO monitoring. Uh, this is SLO or service level objectives, which apparently they're probably using for that BigQuery thing we just talked about. Uh, gives the ability to focus on signals and improve the signal to noise ratio. 
This, along with out-of-the-box alerts, reduces the level of expertise required to monitor production and make it easier to identify and remediate issues before they're impacting critical business metrics. Uh, they also added G Suite audit logs and cloud logging, uh, multi-cloud and on-premise with their partnership with former sponsor Blue Medora, now generally available at no additional cost. Uh, you can now install, run, and manage cloud logging and monitoring agents across groups of compute engines with a single command. Log buckets, log views, regionalized log storage, improved log routing, and customizable retention. Extended retention of custom and Prometheus metrics and 10-second resolution for those metrics. Uh, the new dashboard API, out-of-the-box dashboards, pubs up alerting notifications and monitoring query language. And a new log viewer, which adds histograms to the log viewer, adds a log field explorer, and saved and recent searches in the new logs viewer. Integration with traces and log querying language with support for regular expressions. Whew. There's a lot of features that are now That's a lot of stuff. And observability. So you're welcome. So are three of them trading then or just one of them? None of them are training, which I'm shocked because wow. typically when Amazon's like, or Google's like, hey, we have these brand new things. We're like, and it includes a new webinar that we're announcing next week that you can go join. And I'm like, that's not really a feature. <laughs> None of them are training this time around, which I was pleased to see. Although they did I mentioned the blog post thing at the end that there is training available for these new features, uh, but that was not one of the features they accounted. So I, I'll give them a pass this time. So Got week six time. of the conference. This is, this is uh, okay. What is week six? Since you're looking at it, yeah, it's wild. Well, it's just interesting. I, no, I guess you know, like either the all the the big flashy news was done up front, or they're waiting for the last week. I'm not real sure, but it sure slowed down. It, it's definitely slowed down quite a bit. Yeah. Um, even this week with KubeCon EU, I thought there might be some stuff. Uh, it's really been pretty quiet, even from KubeCon for GCP. Uh, on what they're doing, although they did announce this feature, <laughs> which is the uh, they're announcing a new joint solution with NVIDIA. Uh, now available in beta that allows customers to run NVIDIA GPU workloads on Anthos across hybrid cloud and on-premise environments. Uh, of course, you know, the limited supply of GPUs in the world, uh, you may need to be able to get them on-premise. You may need to be able to get them in AWS or Azure. And so with Anthos, you can, and the limited supply of GPUs, you can now run your ML AI workloads in other clouds or on-premises with Anthos Control Plane. They build a strong relationship with NVIDIA and leverage the NVIDIA GPU operator to deploy GPU drivers and software components required to enable GPUs in Kubernetes. And the solution works with many popular NVIDIA data center GPUs, including the new V100 and the T4 series uh, that have been around for a little while on Azure and AWS. So and also so the low, low, similar, you know, low, low floor price of $10,000 per month yeah. for the 12-month commitment. I was going to say, like, which one of my children do I sell for either GPUs, which are rare and expensive, or Anthos, which is just expensive? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think both. if you want this feature and you're buying for on-prem GPUs, you really don't care how much Danthos costs you. That's how I see it. <laughs> Clearly, money's no object. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, uh, you're. I need to work for you because you're going to have a lot of money to throw away. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to Azure. Uh, Azure again has been kind of absent. I think they must be like really gearing up for something big, right? This is what it's got to be because like the announcements are just ugh, so boring. First one is a, a, a new blog post in the Azure Advancing Reliability blog series. Uh, this is by Mark Rosinovich, the CTO of Azure. Uh, this one is focused on automation, communication, and transparency, and details how they view incident communication principles and all of the things about how they run outages and how they do RCAs and the transparency they want to provide to you, an Azure customer, when things go wrong. So if you are curious about how that works, uh, this is a great blog post. Again, the series has been a highlight of the year from Azure because they haven't really done anything else. But uh, this blog series has been fantastic and uh, really check it out if you're interested i like hearing about how any company deals with these difficulty thing, difficult things um so I, I like i like that companies especially the larger ones are are publishing these blog series just because it helps 
especially if you don't have the scale, you know, to replicate some of these failures in your day job, you can kind of see what people do at larger scales and sort of adapt those type those principles for your workload. So great. Or accept that you never want to have to do what they're doing and just use a hyperscaler. That's true too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the second announcement from Azure this week is Azure Blob now supports soft delete for containers in public preview. Uh, soft delete for containers expands upon Azure Blob storage existing capabilities such as soft delete for blocks, account delete locking, and immutable blobs. And the container soft deletes it is enabled for in a storage account. You can delete the container, and their contents are re- are retained in Azure storage for a period that you specify. During the retention period, you can restore previously deleted containers and any blobs with them. So again, this is undelete for Azure Blob. Yep, you don't you, don't, you still pay for it until it's gone. <laughs> yep, but you've it's deleted just, it, Jonathan. <laughs> it's the screen test. I would like to save money. I'm going to remove all these containers. Oh, no, put them back, put them back. Oh, my God, put them back. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Indeed. And that is it uh, for this week's new news. Uh, let's move on to the lightning round, Peter. All right, let's start with Azure Data Factory. Managed virtual network support is now in public preview. I really wanted a factory that could work in the world builder above, but this is just a data factory, and I can't use it in the real world. AWS Transfer Family adds predefined secure security policies to choose cryptographic algorithms. Okay, the fact that Transfer Family has predefined security policies for cryptographic means that people just need to move to SFTP. <laughs> like stop, stop making this complicated. Just move to SFTP. Get off your FTP, and everything will be happy. <laughs> we don't need all this complexity and an FTP product. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Amazon Cognito user pools now support customization of token expiration. I recently used Cognito user pools, and I quickly expired my tokens in favor of using Auth0. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was going to. It's not going to beat that, though, so it's not worth it. Oh, come on. Give our listeners the wonderful experience of hearing it anyway. <laughs> no, it's been built up too much now. <laughs> it's performance anxiety it's okay yeah. AWS Lambda now supports custom runtimes on Amazon Linux 2 because Amazon Linux 1 is end of life in December <laughs> so we had to do it soon yeah. uh-huh. Amazon Lambda also now supports Go on Amazon Linux 2 hmm. because it supports custom runtimes so weird yeah. is, is Java next perhaps Peter? Well, let's take a look at the old list. Amazon Lambda now supports Java 8. Uh, Coretto or, or Oracle? Coretto. I mean, that's the, okay. Am I supposed to say Coretto? I think so. It doesn't say no, on La- Amazon Linux 2. Is it supposed to say on La- Amazon Linux 2? Yeah, I mean, technically, probably. I just Amazon, AWS <laughs> Lambda now supports Java 8 Coretto on Amazon Linux 2. There you go. Ooh. Much better. Appreciate that. It's one of those bang-for-your-buck feature releases. Right. Yes. All of the above. All right, Amazon S3 access points now support the copy API. So how did you get data to the S3 access point previously? Confused. The put, maybe? The put? (laughs) Copy API is different. Just think we could have stolen all that capital on data without even traversing the public internet. Amazon Connect adds cut, copy, paste to the contact flow designer. And Joey from Full House says, cut it out. I just wonder I don't know how, what that like, means. Oh, really? <laughs> oh. 
Oh, it's a full house reference. Come yeah. on. Oh, yeah. I don't have kids. There's a oh, hand no. thing you got uh, that I can It was when you were a kid, Peter. It's not, it's not even I was not that young. I don't think I'm that young. <laughs> <laughs> but still no API. Click, 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 click. Yeah. <laughs> they cut that. How out. do you cut copy paste in an API? How do you cut copy paste mouse clicks? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Amazon Elasticash for Redis now supports up to 500 nodes per cluster. But I would walk 500 Redis nodes. And I would walk 500 Redis nodes more. You got that one, Peter? <laughs> Be the man who fared. There you go. Yes, thank you. Miles. Okay. <laughs> to end up on well, your only thing more is Okay, so cultural up- references for Peter, mm-hmm. I've learned. Yeah, it's not a so new, good. N- new thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was just trying to think of the best next line. (laughs) (laughs) AWS site-to-site VPN now supports IPv6 traffic. I mean, at least somebody does. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Uh, Amazon Textract now detects and extracts text even more accurately from tables. So each one of these models has like a confidence score. So is it, you know, how confident are you? Are you more confident? What kind of tables? It, like dying tables? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. If I carve the text into the table and then yeah. can I extract it from the table? Okay. <laughs> Try poker tables. Amazon Connect now returns agents to their previous status after finishing an outbound call. I mean, they were disgruntled before, they're disgruntled after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And your prediction that we were all going to say the same thing has come true. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why my initials were first. (laughs) Uh, Amazon EKS now supports UDP load balancing with network load balancer. I mean, as long as it gets there someday, I guess it's fine. Jonathan's not going to make the joke. Come on, Jonathan. I would just say better than not supporting it. I was going to tell you a joke about UDP, but you wouldn't get it. (laughs) <laughs> Amazon EKS managed node groups now support EC2 launch templates and custom AMIs. Asking the question, are they trying to make it simpler or more complex? Because it could go either way with launch templates. Well, it's much simpler to, you know, ruin your Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> there you <Yes>. go. <laughs> Amazon EKS support for ARM-based instances powered by AWS Gravitron is now generally available. All I can think about with Gravitron is those, you know, fair rides where you it spins really fast and the wall like Oh yeah, love those things. Oh, yeah. They're so much fun. That's all I can think of every time I see Gravitron now. It's, it's all, I think that apparently you can make it comp- apparently, apparently you can make it way more complicated now with Kubernetes. So there you go. <laughs> Pulling it back to the article. There's an internet video of a guy running on one of those things. Have you seen it? Yes. No, I have. And then That's... jumping and doing a backflip. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. Crazy. AWS Cloud9 releases enhanced VPC support. Because what I want to do when I want to code is go figure out my VPC first. No, but think of all the advantages of being able to delete all tables from your database, which is hosted in your VPC, directly from your IDE. Oh, oh yeah. It's great. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. There's only if it's in prod, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the winner for every single question, the answer to every single question is Justin. Yes. Yeah. Is the one specifically that, that kind of wins it for him or just in general? Uh, he just dominated. That was like, that was like watching uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. 
in the playoffs. That's good because if it was the connect one, that's that would have stung a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no. I actually, to be honest, I think my favorite was the Cognito user pools, but I'm not allowed to say that. Amazon might get mad at me. That was a, that was a good one. Uh, actually, uh, we signed up for the podcast to be part of the uh, the new uh, Amazon. There's like some podcast thing they're doing on top of Kindles or something like that. So you can be in the Amazon media. Some again, clearly, I've not researched the story because it's not for the show. But uh, but one of the things I had agreed to is that I would not disparage uh, AWS or Amazon or any Amazon property. And I just kind of was like, yeah, you know what? What are you going to do? Take me off of your platform that no one uses? Yeah. Let's, let's roll these dice. <laughs> wow, we're going to get taken off before we've even been on. <laughs> and then they, and then they, uh, yeah, no, I, I was, I didn't sure we get approved at all. Uh, but then they, uh, they basically got a lot of flack from a lot of people who were like, yeah, I'm never going to do this agreement and you're not going to get our podcast and your thing. And so they backed off that. So now we don't get to get banned by AWS. So I'm kind of bummed. So. You still might get banned. Just not I mean, for, we still get for banned, an undisclosed for, reason. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They just put us at the bottom of the search list. Exactly. It could happen. You never know. Yeah. Well, there are some things coming up here in the next few weeks that we should talk about here. Uh, Amazon has several webinars that are quite interesting. I just signed up for a couple of them myself. The Enhanced CICD with AWS CDK is available to you on August 26th. And then how to optimize for cost when using Amazon DocumentDB with MongoDB compatibility on the 27th. And SQL Server cost optimization, which, again, the correct answer is get off SQL Server yeah. uh, on August 27th at 1 o'clock as well as how to centrally audit and remediate VPC security groups using AWS Firewall Manager, which I'm just excited to figure out what Firewall Manager does. So I'm going to that one <laughs> on August 28th. So do check those out in the show notes uh, and uh, attend those, uh, well, I guess webinars. Because you can't attend them in person. So attend those webinars if you're interested uh, in learning some about these technologies. And we will try to highlight some of those again in the future. Just happy there are things going on outside of my house. Yeah, really? I mean, you're still in your house for them, but yes, I guess they're outside of your house. At least not riots. (laughs) Fair point. Or fires. I I have fires outside my house. Luckily, there's about, you know, 3,000 tract homes between my house and the fires, so it'll be, you know, it'll be a while. Isn't that called fuel? Yeah, I mean, depending on the wind. All right, guys. Well, anything else you want to share here on the Cloud Pod before we sign off for the weekend? Cloud. We would like to thank our on sponsors. On that happy note, no, I think I'm good. Okay, good. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter. Well, it's been a fantastic week here in the Cloud. Talk to you guys all next week. Tweet us with the hashtag. Pound the Cloud. Bye, everybody. Pod.